We left off still with the theme of learning how to live and how learning how to live, how we uh, are learning how to live can't be separated from self-knowing. The first Vipassana teacher that I had was uh, an Indian named Anagarika Munindraji, many people's first teacher here, or one of their first. And apparently he asked this question to a number of us. He asked me, why do you want to practice Vipassana meditation? Uh, And I said, I want to get to know myself. He said, oh, great. Sit down and take a look. (laughs) That's it. Uh, Of course, there's a tremendous truth in that. But it turns out that self-knowing goes on not just on the cushion. Most of our life is not lived on the cushion. And everything that happens to us uh, is, can, reveals self to us. Uh, it's a verb because its value is the seeing in the moment. And then it's over. Uh, as I'm using the term, it's different than self-knowledge, which is something that perhaps you fill up spiral notebooks with, a book full of your insights, let's say a week full of insights here. That's knowledge. Uh, whatever use that might have, uh, and I, I don't know, I, more and more I think less and less of that, uh, because mostly it, it's just used to enrich uh, this epic novel that we're all writing about, me and mine, starring me, produced by me, directed by me, camera me, and then all those names, uh, grip, this, which I never know what they mean, me. Even the tickets are sold by me, mainly to myself. <laughs> My friends are tired of hearing about it. Uh, Self-knowing is very different. It happens in the active present. And then it's uh, old news. So it's a kind of understanding. Understanding here doesn't necessarily mean in words. It's a seeing something, learning about yourself. And uh, it's been coming up a lot in the groups. And I think uh, the idea is, in a sense, a simple one, is that whatever you do, if you pay attention, it reveals something to you about yourself. Uh, and how to link that with Dogen's idea uh, that um, enlightenment or awakening is to be intimate with all things. Dogen also says uh, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. Uh, sometimes that's translated as to learn the Buddha Dharma is to learn about the self. You can see there they go together. You study in order to learn. Uh, so it would be something like to study Buddha Dharma is to study the self. It gets more interesting. To study the self, first, so far it sounds familiar. It may have something to do, uh, overlap in many ways with psychotherapy and just an ordinary uh, anyone who, who lives and learns a bit about life. To study the self is to forget the self. What does that mean? Well, that's the big step. Uh, In fact, self-knowing, a lot of it includes 
learning about ourselves in a way that's quite familiar, that you would learn about from just living, from psychotherapy. Essentially, it's uh, what is being revealed in relationship uh, with nature, with objects, with money, with food, everything, is something about the personality, something about our character. Uh, And it's a way of um, taking stock of ourselves. And we start seeing certain tendencies. It becomes Dharma as it starts to connect with uh, uh, important uh, Dharma themes. For example, uh, in the Four Noble Truths, which all Buddhist schools agree upon, uh, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. There is suffering in this life. But what makes that noble? Uh, Suffering is easy to come by. It's all over the place. Uh, it's, there's nothing particularly noble about it. It just wears you down. Uh, what is noble about it is that it's a, potentially noble, is that it's a gateway to liberation. So self-knowing, one of the most important expressions of self-knowing, and you're finding out about this, whether you know it or not, and the teachings are trying to re-educate us, uh, a different way to relate to suffering. But let's say, if you're paying attention, you may discover your particular way, your characteristic way of relating to uh, when things are not going too well, when they're unpleasant, when they're painful, the full range of unsatisfactoriness. And you might begin to learn that uh, one person begins to see my characteristic way is to explain it away. Another one, I seem to just drown in it and just start... uh, getting lost in it, and another person as I have the need, I've just got to talk about it endlessly. Someone else may see that when the, that particular uh, event in life, which is we all must face, uh, we just bury it or cope with it or put up with it or postpone dealing with it. But I think it's safe to say that most of us, without this kind of Dharma re-education, have our characteristic ways of, of relating to suffering, which we learned early on in life, in childhood, and modified through our education and whatever your experiences have been. Uh, so here, when the Buddha is saying learning how to live, what's implied, well, actually what's being said directly, is that the human race, if it can learn how to direct energy properly, its own energy, uh, it can start to diminish suffering and perhaps for some uh, go beyond it altogether. Emotional suffering, not physical pain. If you have a body, of course there's physical pain. If you don't want to have that physical pain, don't get born. But here we are. Okay, so um, you may find your particular way of relating to it, but what the teachings are telling us is uh, to come back to the the form of dukkha. By now, you probably have heard that term, unsatisfactoriness, many nuances. It's a subtle term. Um, And you may have found your, your way, how you deal with it, and you may have also found that it's not satisfactory. It doesn't seem to work very well. And Dharma is suggesting a a new way to relate to the same suffering that all of us experience, all human beings. 
And that is, rather than grasping onto it or pushing it away, or all the many ways to avoid it, really, uh, to not um, be intimate with it, to, to use the particular language we're using for this retreat, um, to escape one way or another, uh, we see that. And what the Buddha is saying is, uh, I'm putting it in my own words, is all of that energy that is squandered in all these ways of coping, putting up, delaying, denying, repressing, drowning in. What if we took that energy? Just think of how much energy is squandered, wasted, and aggregated it, brought it together, and looked at, brought it to bear on whatever it is that the dukkha is in that given moment, whether it's small or sorrow or torment. Uh, can we learn how to do that? Can we learn how to receive it in the same way that we're learning how to receive the breathing? That's relatively easy. Uh, learning how to receive uh, suffering is another matter. But what is being said is that if you can learn how to do this, it's a doorway to liberation. How could somebody be free, an awakened person, without coming to terms with their suffering? Does it make any sense? It's just uh, silly to me. So one way or another, whether it's this approach or, or another, uh, we have to take stock of ourselves and take account of ourselves. So as we live out here, live out our life here, in the daily life at IMS, um, self-knowing can include seeing how, learning about this. We have the wonderful conditions here of everything being slowed down, uh, a minimal amount of, of uh, well, all the things that take up so much energy back home, uh, most of them are not here. And a tremendous amount of encouragement. Uh, the hours of silence enable the mind to get quieter, which is to say more sensitive, which is to say perhaps uh, stronger, steadier, uh, and to see, more able to see what would be harder to do perhaps at home in the midst of work or family life or whatever your life is made up of. And you could, self-knowing here, would you could see when you're suffering, what is this? What's happening here? And so uh, self-knowing is to, you are getting to know the self. I'm using it now in a, an ordinary way. You're getting to know yourself and the signature that you put on life. We all do. We each have our own signature. But it becomes more of a Dharma activity as you start to see it and let it go. And you begin to uh, see the connection between craving and attachment, sec second noble truth, and this suffering. It's a kind of learning. Remember, what's being emphasized is the Buddha as a great educator. He is, it's more usual to hear him as a great healer, which, of course, he is, great physician, world physician. I see him, uh, they're really, you know, just an angle to look at it, that's all. It's not one versus the other. A tremendous educator. And uh, the course is, we're, there's a syllabus, we're learning it, and we live it out in our life. Uh, where else are we going to do it? And the very materials that make up our life, at least in Vipassana practice, we're always coming back to where we are. We always start with our life as it is right now. If you've been practicing for 100 years or you just walked in the door, how is it for you right now? 
Those are the materials we practice with. And they're perfect. Couldn't be better. But it takes us a while to learn that. Uh, so self-knowing, uh, I hope that's coming to life more for you. That is, uh, learning how to live and understanding ourselves, I don't believe can be separated. If you pay attention and have the intention to learn, you're willing to learn as you live out your life. And as mentioned, that uh, requires a certain humility and most of all, interest. If you have deep samadhi on metta, on the breath, or some other object, and as long as you're uh, singular and focused on that, you uh, get very, very concentrated. But for whatever reason, don't apply that. That's newfound sensitivity and strength of mind to loneliness, to anger, and not just in the abstract, uh, because the practice happens in life, in relationship as well. We'll we'll get into that. Now, there were a number of notes and a few uh, uh, remarks that uh, suggest that I have to clarify something. Uh, they they c- c- come down to this. This emphasis, or the language we're using is allow, allowing and receive. Allow the breath to be just as it is. Allow the mind to be as it is. Allow the body to be as it is. And then to receive it as it is. And that's a high art that we're learning. And most of, for most of us, it's rather difficult. Because it's asking us to restrain ourselves, to learn how to not keep trying to fix things, to intervene, to improve upon things, to use things to get from A to B. Everything is a means to an end. Here we're learning how to get from A to A. And I say, well, that sounds kind of stupid if you're at A. But it isn't, because when we're at A, we're not fully at A. Part of our mind's on B. Or Many of us are so ambitious, it's on Z. But the language does sound uh, passive, uh, fatalistic. Just allow, allow, let it happen. Uh, You've heard it, just this. Uh, Let me try to clarify that. Uh, The skill that we're learning is how to be in immediate contact with what's happening to us through the sense doors. And uh, the mind is a sense door. It's the sixth sense in the Buddha's uh, teaching. Uh, How to experience it intimately, no separation. Uh, To not cook it, if you recall, but to to be experienced in a raw, naked way. As, just as it is. Well, that does sound a little passive, And if misunderstood, it would be something like this. If you're a good yogi, you're sitting in this hall, and suddenly the hall catches fire. And you're sitting there, and you're experiencing yourself starting to sweat even more than you are. And it's starting to get more hot, and then there's a bit of fear, and you look at the fear. And then (laughs) the body tenses up, and you look at that. And then part of the ceiling caves in. And you look at that, you see terror, and then you... Uh, remember, oh, I've got to bring my, bring my attention to the terror and be intimate with it. And you hear sort of like a herd of people running out. If that's what we're learning, let's all get out of here. Turn this, let's turn it into a hell spa, as some of you thought it was.
um, what we're learning is how to connect uh, accurately. It's a, it's a, some of the training is learning about accuracy, seeing, hearing uh, accurately, and then actions can be more accurate in the sense of speech and, and physical action, relevant to what it is that's actually being experienced rather than what thought tells us is happening. So let's revisit that yogi. That yogi is really uh, learning how to be with what's happening. They'd be the first one to notice it and to alert everyone else they've taken bodhisattva vows. <laughs> they went over to the Tibetans for that. Because Theravadans, we're just out for ourselves. We don't care. <laughs> you know, numero uno, screw you. We just. So the Tibetans are having a good influence. They're telling us that it's really good to be kind to other people and help them and uh, try to attain awakening so that you can help other people. Really? Oh, good. Um, and you're out of here. So it's not passive uh, or fatalistic it, because once we remember the instructions are given while you're sitting, in a very safe environment. It's for the sitting instructions. Nothing else is asked of us. Once you get into action and people are involved in situations, then that clarity of, uh, of contact with reality uh, can enable you to be more astute, wiser, kinder in how you act and what you say. At least that's what it's supposed to be doing. That's designed to help us do that. Here's some, some other examples. Because those of you who understood it this way are not alone. Uh, Ajahn Chah, uh, there's a story about Ajahn Chah, a very wonderful Thai forest master who was here uh, in the second year of IMS and uh, was very, very helpful to many of us. Uh, at any rate, uh, the, the way forest monasteries are set up, you have your own kuti, which is a retreat hut, and you can't see anyone else. There are paths interconnecting everyone. Uh, so each person has a solitude, physical solitude anyway, uh, of being your kuti. It's a kind of bamboo. And, uh, and there was a tremendous rainstorm with powerful winds that lasted for a few days. And then when it was over, Ajahn Chah made the rounds to see how his yogis were doing. And so he got to one, and half the roof was blown off, and the meditator was sitting under the, the exposed part, wet, sitting there with a very... Uh, like showing off Tajin Chah, but about equanimity. You see how even-minded I am, uh, that even when this storm happens, I just sit there, nothing bothers me. Uh, you know, it's real equanimity. I'm equanimous. And Ajahn Chah says, yeah, that's true. That's the equanimity, though, of a water buffalo, not a human being. So you can see people with even a lot more practice than you have misunderstood. Uh, wisdom, is, if, if this practice is to make us bigger misfits than when we started. <laughs> um, I'll give you something from my own experience. Um, very early on, maybe the first or second year that I was teaching, I don't believe there was even an IMS or it was... I'm not sure now. It was a long time ago. Those of you who know Cambridge, it was the, the uh, Cambridge Baptist Church. And I was teaching uh, insight meditation there. 
and there was a large room and people would come and same instructions but there was a a very large platform that was the stage normally that room was used for productions uh, theater concerts and so forth and people would come in and put all their belongings there knapsacks and wallets and uh, shoes all kinds of things so it was loaded with all kinds of personal possessions and then we would sit and the instructions sounded like allow everything to the same i have i'm been i'm stuck i've been sounding this way for i'm in a rut maybe you can help me out of it <laughs> allow everything to happen you know just to receive it just the, the same thing and people are sitting there and this didn't happen the first week but i taught there for a while and during one about we were, had done it for four or five months someone must have cased the joint while we were doing that and our eyes were closed see if you were zen your eyes or tibetan your eyes would be half open or so and you would have seen this but us theravadans we close our eyes and this person went in and made off with wallets and uh, all kinds of valuables and got out uh, because and the instructions were allowing and all that stuff okay there was one person in the group who was a cartoonist who uh, had uh, who some of his cartoons were accepted by the new yorker magazine so he submitted a cartoon that was accepted it was in the New Yorker many years ago there's someone teaching meditation who looked a lot like me <laughs> <laughs> except at the time I had long hair and a mustache uh and has this and there were windows around and while this uh teaching about allowing receiving everything just let everything be the way it is run its course you you understand uh there are three or four people climbing in through windows <laughs> with big sacks and there's a big van downstairs and uh they're emptying the entire uh place of all the belongings and we're all just sitting there allowing and permitting and uh so um the can go to extremes obviously that never really happened well to some degree it did um so if this uh, as we learn more and more to be in touch with our feelings to be in touch with sound etc it's designed to help us live uh and i hope that's clear now um so many directions we can go in yes there have also been a number of questions uh about time that is uh that is because to be intimate with the moment is another way of saying be now be in now and uh, there are different ways of teaching that word is in vogue as you know there are a number a growing number of books that have the power of now uh, uh now now sometimes with an exclamation point and what's emphasized is being in the present moment it's in commercials it's really made it into the mainstream um and what is being extolled is the present moment of course there's going to be the question of uh what in the world is so uh, uh important about this present moment because uh what's implied in the buddhist teaching is that the present moment has immense significance much more than just learning how to be a a, hel- a, a happy vacuumer or a happy va- uh, vegetable chopper that's just the surface okay um 
So the questions have been, uh, people are starting to see that their mind spends a lot of time on the future and on the past. And wondering, well, now what? Uh, that is an intimate. For example, people are starting to see that when you work with the breathing exclusively, um, test it if you've never done this, just take a few minutes or a sitting. You'll see that probably, good chance of it, uh, much of the time when you're just taken away from the breath, it's about something in the future or something in the past. Uh, it varies from person to person. Some people are, uh, at a given moment are tremendously preoccupied with the future. And so what keeps coming up are imagined futures of either wonderful, which are better than now, or nightmarish, which are worse than now. And other people are hopelessly mired in the past, ancient past sometimes, which is either a nightmare or magnificent. And, and, and then even the present moment is cooked. It's cooked in the sense we have ideas about what's happening, concepts about it. And so these questions have been, I think, very astute questions about, does that mean the, uh, the, there's no, for example, what is said many, many times is there's only now, I've said it, I know a few times, and I think all of us, one way or another, are getting at it, there's only now. Okay, if there's only now, uh, what place does the future have? Okay. And when you look carefully, you'll see what we call the future happens in the present, but it's a delusion. That is, when it happens and we get caught in it, uh, the mind creates an imagining of some time in the future. And it's as if it's virtual time. The, the mind is, uh, it's as if you're in some future, but that's all taking place in the present moment. Where else can it take place? When the mind reaches back into the past and retrieves something, that is over and will never be back. Uh, it's again virtual time in that it feels so real that we're living in this uh, notions about how it was and it can be very, very convincing. Uh, so what do we do about that? Uh, we're getting at time and what the Buddha is suggesting, I'm using a different terminology clearly, which I learned from a few friends I got from the stock market. I don't know a whole lot about it. It looks insane to me, all these people running around. And it looks like the epitome of what the Buddha is talking about. Uh, like a bunch of people insanely released and trying to get money. <laughs> From moment to moment. But now, the data can be now. It can be the computer has made it possible so that you get a reading of stocks in real time, not just virtual time. It's not, it's not five minutes old or half or whatever it used to be. I don't know. Okay. But it has applications in our life. Uh, uh, Ajahn Mahagosananda is a Cambodian uh, Vipassana teacher who used to come here with some regularity and visit us in Cambridge. And he would sum up the whole Dharma as it's a question of whether you eat time or time eats you. Well, what in the world does that mean? Um, if you're lost in time, in a sense, it's eaten you. Liberation, one, one way of looking at liberation, is we're liberating ourselves from being enslaved to psychological time. It's not clock time. We need to know it's 8 o'clock. I need to know it. Definitely. Okay. Um, that is a practical convention. 
that we've all agreed upon so we can live together. And it's one contribution to harmonious living. Psychological time, which if unexamined, and here's again to come back to self-knowing, um, had I not come in contact with the Buddhist teaching, here are a couple of things that I, on my own I never would have figured out. Uh, before we get to uh, enslavement to psychological time. Just a simple in-and-out breath. Um, would I have figured out that but by just temporarily uh, letting everything go into abeyance and concentrating on just a simple in-and-out breath could bring a tremendous amount of joy and happiness and leave me with a mind that feels so much more adequate, fresh, alert, alive, serviceable, fit, on my own, would I have discovered that? Of course not. It's too simple. I think we got the most brilliant Einstein and everyone and put them in a think tank in Palo Alto, took care of all the expenses. Uh, can you find some simple way so that we can get some... Do you think, I don't think anyone would come up with that. And yet, it's an ancient truth. It's way before the Buddha. If you pay attention to your breathing, it's not wisdom, but temporarily what happens is you can kind of become absorbed in the breathing and you're given a holiday from all of your afflictions. Okay, so uh, learning how to live in this sense is th there's some help. The help is the teach the teachings help us. But the Buddha also emphasizes very strongly, we don't have time to go into it. Some of you know, in the Kalama Sutta and other teachings, the Buddha strongly emphasizes uh, to not hand over authority to others over your, how you live your life. That is, uh, to see if it, that is, to take advantage of, to seek counsel of the wise, that's fine. It's not like we have to invent fire for the first time, all the time. So I'm very happy that someone told me, just sit there and follow your breath. And wow, look what's happening. Okay. Um, the Buddha is suggesting that everything that the teachings are, talk about need to be tested. Otherwise, it's not your own. It's borrowed. Uh, this one said, that one said, and it's not a belief system. It's not, in this view, I don't know, it's, uh, uh, it's part religion, part philosophy, part psychology. Uh, it has a certain scientific bend to it. It's got some, something like mysticism. If you want to call it a religion, it's fine. It, a dharma is uh, the name that, uh, go, that I think is most accurate. Um, what's emphasized is that the teachings are not, it's not a belief system that we surrender to, although a certain amount of faith is needed, the faith conviction to try it. How will you find out? So, when we, in Cambridge, I asked people after they've been practicing for a while, do you know for yourself that breath awareness brings some serenity, some inner peace? And sometimes people will say, oh, sure, of course. And are you sure about that? And sometimes people say, you know, I don't really know. It just makes me feel good because I know the Buddha said it and everyone else is saying it. I'm saying, then it's not your own yet. It's like a hypothesis that hasn't been tested and confirmed in scientific language. And everything's like that. Now, so we have the advantage of teachings uh, that are giving us some hints on how to live uh, and some techniques and methods that have been left for us, fortunately. 
And if you pick them up and use them, you're not meant to slavishly believe in them, but you need a certain minimum amount of conviction to hand yourself over to it so you can set in motion the activity of watching breath and then to find out if indeed it is a useful human activity. Now, many of you who've been here for quite a while, I know you know it's true. It's your own now. You're not just uh, picked up something and, and it makes you feel good. I'm a Buddhist. I follow my breath. Okay, now we get into psychological time. It's exactly the same. All of it's the same. On my own, I would not have discovered this. I know it. I, I hadn't. And then suddenly I'm reading about this kind of stuff. In one sutra, someone comes up to the Buddha and says, uh, how come all the meditators around you are so radiant and at peace? He said, well, they don't hanker after the future. Uh, they're not um, stuck in the past. They uh, sustain themselves in the present moment. They nourish themselves in the present moment. Period. It's a short little thing. There are others. The Bade Karata Sutta goes into much more detail on this. Okay, so what's being said here? Uh, is we, a lot of our energy is lost in worlds that the mind spins out about some future life that never comes. It's never the way we think it's going to be. It could be better, but it isn't the way we think it's going to be. It's going to be the way it is. Or dwelling in the past again and again and, be, it's, uh, and being stuck there or embroidering the present in such a way that we don't even feel what's really happening. Now, how to work with this? Because some of the questions were, does this mean um, that I can't, there's nothing, nothing, to have nothing to do with the future? No, it doesn't mean that. It means know what you're doing when you're using the future. For example, uh, if you need to make uh, a guess, or uh, sometimes at CIMC, and we used to do it here too at IMS, we take some time, the teachers do at CIMC, and we used to do it here, uh, kind of take some uh, visioning, try to get a sense of where is IMS going, where is it heading, what, why are we here, and, uh, and just allow our minds to uh, roam freely and, and play with what's possible and use that skillfully, or planning. Okay, so, but you're firmly planted in the present moment knowing that you're attending to the future. Now, sometimes there's intelligence in a, a, a future imagining. Supposing you hear all this stuff about Social Security. Actually, this did happen. Well, there are two things that happened. Which one would be better for you? <laughs> oh, this one's better. Um, someone comes in for an interview. This is in Cambridge and is clearly sad. Well, what's the problem? Uh, that, well, I'm, I'm starting to realize that at some point uh, I will be old, I'll be in a nursing home, I might lose my capacities, be treated with disrespect by the you know, person that's seen a nursing home with one of their relatives. And that's true. Um, or someone else, this was the other one, was worried about Social Security going broke. Okay, so sometimes a fear, a fear about your sense of a possible future is a kind of a piece of intelligence. And so, fine, it could happen. Then set aside some money for yourself so that uh, if this does happen to Social Security, then you at least have something that you can 
uh, use. But that, let's go back to the first person, uh, where the person was going on and on about uh, terror of being in a nursing home. Now this person was 48 years old. Okay, so I don't know if this is good teaching or not, but what I said was, look, why don't you check into a nursing home? You're already there. <laughs> And you'll be the star of the ward. <laughs> the aides and the nurses, and that they're going to love you. Everyone else is, you know, incoherent. Uh, it'll be the high point of your life. <laughs> In other words, fine, it could happen to all of us, but if, if this is something that you're dwelling on again and again, what use does it have? So it, it, it's, again, examining it with wisdom, learning about this. Uh, what, uh, what is this? And seeing maybe the initial reflection uh, is helpful to understand that, uh, even just as compassion, because it is true. Some of the nursing homes, if any of you have been there, the people are in terrible shape, and they're not well-treated. Okay. Same with the past. Someone said this. Well, this is what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, let's say, you meet a new person, and... They say, hi, and you're getting to know each other, and they say, um, uh, where are you from? Where were you born? Where would you go to school? You know, the usual stuff. And you say, mm, can't talk about it, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> That's over with. I'm just in the now. <laughs> just tell them where you're from. That isn't suffering. And sometimes a skillful use of the future isn't suffering. What is suffering is when we inadvertently don't realize that where we're spending a lot of time is in virtual time. That's what enslavement to psychological time is. We, we, we're not fully awake to that. We're not fully awake of how much is being spent on a future that never arrives. And the price is tremendous. Because often, why do we go to that future and that past? For whatever reason, how this got started, you know, we can all speculate, but clearly the last place we want to be is now, here and now, even though the teachings are saying this again and again. Why do we say it so often? Now, what's so great about now? Because we don't, we're not there. And yet what's being said is that's all there is. One of my first teachers said, I, I was uh, very intellectual. I mean, I'm not so bad anymore. I don't want to brag, but I, I'm not. I've gotten much dumber. Um, and I said, Larry, don't waste your time chasing shadows. There's just now. Oh, but I didn't fully get it. I don't know if I've fully gotten it now, because the more you see it. But you start to see in small ways how it gets in the way of being intimate with the moment. You start to see that... Um, somehow the future is going to be better than whatever it is that you have now. And yet what the teachings are saying is an imperfect present that isn't all that fulfilling is far more valuable than some imaginary future that you're entertaining yourself with to avoid what's happening. Because by entering into now, no matter what the quality of it is, the way you transcend it is by facing it. That's what... Uh, for example, if it's suffering, if it's dukkha, why is that a gateway to liberation? Because that's the doorway to freedom. All the energy that's all frozen and tied up 
in the characteristic ways in which we suffer, our own forms of craving and attachment. It's different for each one of us, but it's the same. Okay. We, st- we, start to, we, we start to, if you can bring, learn how to be, to, to relate to that in a new way, then that literally is a door. It opens up because the present moment is inexhaustible. It has uh, the present moment just a word. There is no present moment. That the, not only is there no future and no past, there's no present. Where is it? It's gone. It's become... It's gone. So all we can do is, when we live, those are ideas. Those are ideas, but the living is not an idea. Okay. And uh, the depth that is possible in human practice uh, emerges or emerges because according to this teaching, and it's for you to find out and test, it can be called original mind, true mind. I actually like those terms. Uh, The mind we're living in now is the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the old mind. It's been with us a long time. It's our little home. Uh, We're uh, constantly touching it up a bit, uh, getting some new upholstery, uh, (laughs) new paint job. Uh, It's just become a wonderful, cute little prison. (laughs) And what the teaching is saying is you're enclosed by something that's been manufactured by your own mind. This enclosure is created by you. And then we're trying to improve it in all kinds of ways, to have a better prison, to improve the story of me and my life. Adding now seven days at IMS, where I tasted great calm, and, uh, and I saw that the new direction is to go towards wisdom and awakening, and to cast aside all of my petty uh, yearnings, and to become a great saint. Uh, we're back to square one. <laughs> you wanted to be a millionaire, okay? You've seen through that one. Before that, you wanted to be a great baseball player. Yep, we've seen through that one. You wanted to be a great cowboy. You've seen through that one. <laughs> Whoop, we're back to woods again. <laughs> okay, I think time is up. Um, Two days in a row now, I brew all these quotes and I never get to them. But one, I don't. Um, I am going to end off uh, with cowboy dharma. Um, but Woods has it a little wrong. What, what really, I do have a love, but it's for cinema. It's, we call it cinematic dharma. I love films. And cowboy dharma is just one kind of film. Uh, most cowboy movies, I mean, it's our mythology, those of you who are not from the United States, uh, which my wife is not from the Soviet Union. I think I told you her attitude. I left off one of her reactions. Uh, remember, she grew up in Moscow and an avid theater goer, opera, uh, uh, ballet, concerts, drama, museums, and uh, she marries this guy who's sitting there watching Gunsmoke. <laughs> okay. And she's trying to find some common thread, you know, like, where did I go wrong, you know, to get into this marriage? So 
she's still trying, but she'll come in while I'm watching it, and you see she's trying to relate to it. And she'll stay two or three minutes and then usually leaves. And one time, some months ago, she stayed, she looked, and I saw she was really trying to find something, and she went like, well, with a thick Russian accent, Chekhov it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end uh, with two film. Uh, just one's enough. Um, again, it is a, a, there, there's a, a film called Lonesome Dove. If any of you have seen it, it's a cowboy epic. Robert Duvall and who? What's his Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones. Jones. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's uh, it's long. It's a series, and uh, I love it. It's something, it's just, you know, cowboys, but there's something to it. And here's, uh, here's uh, part of cowboy wisdom. But, you know, before we go to that, the reason cinema is such a rich source of wisdom is because if you really want to learn about dukkha, watch the films. They are masters at showing you how to achieve and attain dukkha. Because <laughs> the film would not be interesting if people weren't bumping each other off, lying to each other, all the precepts. Uh, so just watch it. At least it's not your life. You can see that. <laughs> it's like a, a demonstration. You know, sort of first aid. If you're you know, when you go to school as a young kid, this is what you should do. If you don't, and you watch. This is how to make suffering if you want it, and do this and don't do that and lie to this person and all the rest of it. So if you watch it, it's a fantastic uh, education about how not to live. Okay. So in this one, in this uh, Lonesome Dove, uh, one, the, 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 one of the two main women in it, and one is, she's a whore, a very lovable, kind, good-hearted young whore. And, <laughs> no, she is, she is. I, I'm not saying whore in a derogatory sense at all. Uh, it's just a descriptive term, seriously. Okay, and so, uh, but something happens, and she's really seriously mistreated by some uh, ruffians, renegades, and uh, who, uh, who, who um, grab her and mistreat her as seriously as you can be mistreated. And, the, she, and then Robert Duval, who's really, in a, in a sense, the key character, he comes to her and he's holding her and comforting her, and she's sobbing and saying about what happened to her. And she says, they shouldn't have done that. They really shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have done that to me. And Robert Duval must have had a Vipassana retreat somewhere. <laughs> he says, you're right, darling. They shouldn't have done that to you, but they did. So, so cry your little heart out and then get on with your life. Is that wise or isn't it? <laughs> There's not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> isn't that what we've been saying all along? The mind is constantly what should be, what used to be, and we're saying, mm-hmm. It would be nice if the retreat was just moderate temperature and all, but this is the way it is. Why don't you have air conditioning here? We don't. This is the way it is. Okay. We should, though, shouldn't we? Yeah, we don't. Okay. We have a few moments of silence.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.